John 15, 9 to 17. Let's read it together. We're in his farewell speech that he gives just before being arrested and ultimately convicted and crucified. And this is the last of the things he wants to tell his disciples before that happens. So he says this, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. Ryan talks about that last week. What does it mean to remain, to abide in Christ's love? Verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appoint you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. I'm half tempted to just read that over and over and over again. If that just buried itself deep into uh, every cell of our body, the truths of what Jesus just said to us and said to his disciples, I mean, if that just buried itself in us, we would come alive in a beautiful way. But you know, I've got a few things to say, so I can't just let it go. I've got a few things to say because I think we've missed this passage in the life of the church for quite some time. I feel like this passage will give us clarity as to whether or not we are truly abiding in the vine, as Ryan talked about last week. So that handout that he walked us through, are we being moralistic? Are we being intellectualizing? Are we being just mystical? Or are we abiding, remaining, consuming the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what this handout's about. How can we know? And Jesus will, as he does, continue To clarify, we will know if we're truly remaining in his love by the way we love. So, if you were here last week, you remember that this this whole flow of this speech is coming out of this idea that when we remain or abide or stay or consume In the vine, and that vine is Jesus Christ, we will become like the vine, right? Like, we can't help, it just happens, it's just, 
It's not something that we have to do. What we have to do is remain in the vine. And then we become like the vine. And so essentially, the result of abiding is that you become like Jesus Christ himself. Which is to say, because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that you become like God. Which is to say that you become that which you were always created to be, as Genesis 1 tells us, the unique part of all of God's creation that bears God's image. That's what you were created to be. So, as I'm studying this passage, I just see three elements jump out at me in this part of the speech, in this passage, that teach us what it truly means to be Christ-like or God-like or an image-bearer of the invisible creator. What does that really mean to be a human being? Human beings unique among all creation to be given the task to be representatives of God, ambassadors of God, to have domain and dominion and to express fullness of God in the world. That, that's what we, like, do you know that's what you're called to do? And of course, sin and rebellion and selfishness, they get in the way of us accomplishing that original mandate. And Jesus Christ comes so that we can return to and, and, and accomplish that in a way that we couldn't actually even have accomplished that even before sin came and Christ redeemed And we understood love in the way that it was intended to be expressed and imaged by us in the world. Okay, so that's what, that's why i got to say some things. This is a big, big, amazing mandate that Jesus is giving us here. And it's going to tell us these three things. They should jump out at me. What does it mean to be an image bearer? What does it mean to be Christ-like? What does it mean to be God-like? What does it mean to be a human being as God intended? Three things. Taking notes. It means to be lovely. It means to be friendly. And it means to be otherly. Lovely, friendly, and otherly. And I'll explain why I'm using the lees in a sec. If it's messing with you, it's intentional. I'm going to say it in a slightly different way than maybe you've heard it. Okay, so we're going to walk through. That's what I'm going to do today is walk you through. Lovely, friendly, otherly from the passage. See if it helps. If it doesn't, listen to Ryan's sermon from last week again. It was that good. It's worth two listens. 45 minutes if you have it on 1.5 speed, which is how I listen to my sermons. And I listen to mine at 2.0, his at 1.5. It's really just know it's, you can do it. If you miss it, you can do it. We don't care. You don't have to listen to us at normal pace. Nobody should be subjected to that. Okay. Unless you're live. Live's different. You get to feel the room. Okay. So good. Oh, man. It was a be- I had a great week. I went to Denver. I saw old friends. And the best part of my week was listening to Ryan's sermon last week. Or, or last, I listened to it last night. Like I said, busy week. I saw it make sure. But then I listened to it and it's like, boom. So good. So thankful for that teaching. It was so good. I felt like I ate a gospel diet. I felt like I consumed. I felt like, oh, this helps me be more lovely and friendly and otherly. Thank you, Ryan. Okay, here we go. Number one, be lovely. 
To be a human being, as God intended, is to be lovely. Let me try to explain my thinking here. The, the, the profound command of this section of, of Jesus' speech, remember these are Jesus' words, direct to us, uh, the, the profound command, it's reiterated twice. John 15, 12 says this. What does he say? This is my command. Do you think he wants you to know this is the command? He didn't just put it in uh, the command form of the verb. He tells you this is the command. Love one another as I have loved you. Okay, did you get that? He's worried that you might miss it, so he said it again in verse 17. He says, this is what I command you. Love one another. And the only other command or verb in this section that has the command form of the verb, the imperative, is in verse 9. Remain in my love. Okay, so love is really important, right? So what does it mean, and why did I use the term lovely? Why didn't I just say to love? Well, I think it's more complicated than that. It's definitely the command is to love, but it's more than just Loving, and so for me, it's intentional that I use this weird version of the word love, lovely, because when you think lovely, you think beautiful or pretty or whatever, but you don't think of what Jesus is saying. I want to redefine this, or at least help you understand why I picked this word, because I want you to pause as I hope it invokes in you a slightly different understanding of what it means to be lovely as God wants us to be lovely as a human being, okay? So... That's the intent. Nine times he uses the word agape, which is love. But he uses it in a variety of ways. So first of all, he says, we allow ourselves to be loved and remain in that love. So just as Jesus remains in the Father's love throughout his entire life, he says it's possible for us as human beings, because Jesus modeled it for us, to remain in the love of God throughout our life. Okay, in that sense, we are like storehouses of God's love. So we're not just, and I'll get to it, agents of love, but we're storehouses of love. God has poured his love on us, and we are like a storehouse that's meant to just fill up with the love of God. And this might be the hardest part of being lovely for you. You might be real good at the other parts I'm about to, I'm about to talk about. Loving others, giving away, being generous, but you do not receive love well. That's part of being lovely. To remain in his love is to be able to be a storehouse of God's love. you got to take it in before you can give it out. That's the first part. It says you have to remain. It allow ourselves to be loved. That's part of being lovely. Now, not only do we take in or allow ourselves, receive God's love, but we are also to be reflections of a very certain kind of love and reflect the love like Jesus loved, right? He said, he didn't just say it, love one another. He said, love one another like I have loved you. And so he gives us, and this might be the, the hardest part for some of us. Okay, we receive love well, but we have a really hard time reflecting love exactly as Jesus has loved us. We want to redefine love in our own image, not in the image of God. And so when we become lovely like God wants us to become lovely, it is to be a reflection of a very specific certain kind of love, not just any general version of love. This is agape love as Jesus has defined it and modeled it and lived it out through his coming, his giving, his death, and his resurrection. So we are reflections of a very certain kind of love. This might be the hardest part for some of us. 
but it's part of being lovely, as God wants us to be lovely. Third way we interact with love. We are to be producers of love, producers of love. We are to be multipliers, not just reflectors, but multipliers or creators of love. In that sense, love is our fruit, the fruit that Jesus has just finished talking about that comes by abiding in the vine and letting the vine dresser, the great gardener, which is God our Father, prune us. Direct our growth so that we would create love, actually multiplying love, not just reflecting it. We do that, but but reflecting it such a way as that there is now more love in the world than there was before we surrendered ourselves to be producers of this new vineyard. So, it's complicated, right? It's not just do these certain tasks and then you will be... In God's command, you must become lovely. So for me, this idea, why I like the term be lovely, is that it's this idea of radiating in every potential way the love of Jesus Christ. So you become a radiator of love. Or you can say it this way, you are, to be lovely is to be an inspirer of love. So, that's what lovely people are, right? Like, I, I try to do some research on the etymology of the word lovely, and what a, we, what a strange word, and what were the English doing, and it's Middle English, and who knew what was going on? I don't even know. Watch more documentaries, I guess, about what was going on in Britain at the time. But to me, it's like I hear this, and I say, what is a lovely person? And a lovely person inspires love, right? So I think that's why we, like, we've sort of pigeonholed lovely as, like, somebody who's pretty or beautiful, because they inspire our love for them. There's something about them that makes me want to love them. So I think that's just one facet of it, that you become what God has created you to be, a lovely person, because you've been filled with this love, because you reflect this very Christ-like version of love. You inspire love in multiple forms, including your own agency to be a lover. And in that sense... Love multiplies and grows and fruit is born. And, and, lo- and I think that's the main thing Jesus is saying in this passage. Be multipliers of my kind of love in the world. Be inspires of love so that people can't help but love in the way I've always created love to function from before the foundation of the world was created. Before I even made human beings, my idea was to multiply my love and share it with these new creatures in creation. Oh, that sounds like something I want to participate in. Maybe. I do. But you're like, how? (laughs) How do I do that? How do I become lovely? Great question. Let's look at verse 16. How do you become lovely? What's the first step? Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. (laughs) You don't have a first step. God always has the first step. He chooses you, and you respond to his choosing. So God's choosing of humanity 
or even you could say God's choosing of creation to even create and then God's choosing to make humanity special and unique as his image bearers and then God's choosing of Israel from among the nations to rebuild his kingdom and then God's choosing of the 12 disciples to whom he's speaking of here all of this choosing was not based upon beauty or qualification but simply upon God's choice he chooses not based on any prerequisite. This idea theologians call predestination. And predestination teaches us that God does not love us because we were always lovely. God loves us with a love that makes us lovely. You see that? And, and, and what's so interesting is then when you see this idea sort of teased out, and it's a complicated idea, and I'm not going to go into it this morning, of God choosing us and predestining us for, for loveliness, but, but when we understand how the New Testament writers use this, for example, like the Apostle Paul, it's almost used paradoxically, this doctrine of predestination or God's choosing, in order to heal divisions among the people of God who want to sit there and say, you're not lovely in the way you should be, and you're not lovely in the way you should be, and you're not doing enough, and you're, you're doing too much, and you're annoying, and da-da-da-da-da, you just go on and on. And Paul says, hold on, let me tell you about why any of you are lovely at all. God chose you, and he loved you in such a way to which you are now lovely. Don't get it backwards. He does this to the Corinthians. We'll read about them in a second, who think they're quite lovely in the way they express their spirituality in the world. And Paul says, no, you're not. <laughs> That's not how loveliness works. You are lovely because God chose you and loved you in such a way that through his love, you transformed into something that he now considers lovely. Are you okay being lovely in the way God allows you to be lovely? I love that. It's a very important point here. I chose you. You didn't cho choose me. And when we realize that we contributed nothing to our loveliness, or to our salvation, that even our faith is a gift from God, we can then humble ourselves or become humble men and women that boast only in the cross of Christ and nothing else. And it is only when we make that boast, the cross of Christ boast, and cease boasting in ourselves or our own beauty or our own skills or our own accomplishments that then we become true agents of healing and redemption and, and producers of loveliness in the world. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Christ. That's the message of Scripture. It's incredibly leveling, isn't it? Hope it is. Now, um, Martin Luther, who was... Uh, a Catholic monk and became increasingly sort of unsettled by the state of affairs of the church at the time and you know this was before the Protestant Reformation and so there was just really kind of one church throughout the world and so um, Martin Luther wrestled uh, with his faith and, and he worked his fingers to the bone and he tried to keep all the commands of God perfectly and memorize scripture and he did, he did sort of everything on that sheet that Ryan gave to us. You know, he was excellent morally and excellent intellectually. And he was excellent sort of, he's living in a monastery doing all the practices of, 
of uh, the most advanced practices of sort of experiencing God. And, and he just sort of came to the end of himself and he said, I just feel like there's a block, there's just something that we're missing. And, and, and through a deep and honest reading of the book of Romans, he realized that we'd sort of missed something along the way. And that thing that we had missed about Christianity and the teaching of Jesus was this very thing. That there is nothing we can do to earn God's love. Nothing. He chose to love us. And we are justified by faith in that love. And it was just totally upside down from what he thought. And he'd worked so hard. But it's a gift. It's a gift called grace. And, and, and it sort of launched and set afire this whole you know, complicated history of the Protestant and Catholic reformations. And, but, 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 but the famous thing that, or one of the many famous things that he, descri- that he described was sin. And, and he put sin this way. And he said it in the Latin. He said it's homo incurivatus in se, which means man curved in on himself. This is what sin is. Man curved in on himself. See, I, I like just you feel to do this in your seat because it kind of gives you the feel. Man curved in on himself. Feel that? You ever feel that? You're just like, stretch out. This is why principle number one is great at sitting Look up. You know, you just like realize, oh my gosh, I'm so curved in on myself. I need to do some stretching. Okay, so sin is really man curved in on himself. And so what is the cure of man curved in on himself? Luther wrestled with this. Well, the answer is, like Ryan said last week, a steady diet of the gospel, a steady diet of Jesus Christ himself, a steady diet, reminders and proclamations and reading of and singing of and celebrating of the person and work and love of God through Jesus Christ through the incarnation, the perfect life live, the death in our place, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the sending of the Spirit, that God chose us to love us in this way, cures us of man curved in on himself and makes us open now to be agents of love. Only through an act of God, unwarranted, undeserved, And the reception of this gift of grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus that cancels our sin record, that gives us new life by the resurrection and the Spirit, can we become lovely and therefore remain in God's love and become agents of that very certain kind of love in the world we inhabit. Otherwise, our acts of love are just undercover, even if subconscious, undercover acts of homo incurivatus in se, man curved in. Even the best of your works, even the best of your love, is just more of the same man curved in on himself. That you have some agenda for yourself, even in your acts of love. And so the, 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 the revolution of love that Jesus came is way bigger than you think it is. It, it's, a, it's an unfolding of millennia of man curved in on itself. That's what Jesus Christ is doing by the power of the Spirit through the power of the gospel. And he starts it by saying this right before he goes to die. Love like I have loved. So this command to be lovely is to become vessels of grace 
first and foremost to one another. To other disciples, to brothers and sisters in Christ, to the family of God. Which honestly, if you can get good at that, you'll probably be good at loving others as well. Seriously. Some of the hardest love is in the family, right? So becoming vessels of grace to one another for God's glory. This is the first part of being human that Jesus is trying to recover. Be lovely. Number two, be friendly. So if that was the profound command of this passage, be lovely, the profound revelation of this passage is be friendly because the profound revelation in this section is that God tells us that we are his friends if we want to be. That's a revelation. God wants to be friends with me. Now, being friendly is not just like being nice. That might be how you hear it. Again, I'm going to redefine being friendly. It's not just like being nice or, you know, do no harm like I talked about a couple weeks ago. Being friendly is infinitely more profound than that. Why? Because if God says, I want to be friends with you, that, mean, that means God, in God, is the source of friendship. It's the beginning of the story of friendship. God is capable of friendship. It's way bigger than you think. Friendship is not just something human beings need to get by. It's something that God needs to get by. That God is in himself. He is a friend. And so this mind-blowing revelation about God, that God has friends. <laughs> Are you, why is nobody giddy right now? Why is nobody freaking out? Like, God needs friends too. And God has always had friends, is the point. And God's friendship is not just being nice. God is fierce. God is purposeful. God has a plan. And so we get our definition then of friendship from God. It's this quality of God that has existed in eternity past. And, you know, if you've ever struggled with the doctrine of the Trinity, this, this Christian idea that there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, if you've ever struggled with that, you're like everyone that's ever existed. It's not an easy doctrine to understand. But, oh, am I so glad that God has revealed it to us because embedded in that doctrine is friendship. Like, this is how we know friendship was before us, and it will be after us. And so when we long for it, we're longing for the very core fabric of the universe, that God is friendship, okay? And, and we get that from the Trinity, that before God created, there was friendship between Father, Son, and Spirit in the triune Godhead, the one God in three persons. Even though it blows our mind to even think, what, is that, what, is the, what does that mean, we can never fully grasp it, but we can understand it to a degree. And so we understand friendship because of it. And friendship existed and was given, therefore, into the image-bearing nature of the human being. And we see that in the garden in Genesis chapter 1. We see that. Where do we see it? Well, actually, Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we have like a zoomed-in vision of creation, and God creates Adam first, and he has not yet created Eve. 
In Genesis 1, he's told us he created man and woman in his image. But in Genesis 2, as we zoom in, slow down, we see God creates man first. And, and it says that Adam was lonely. Lonely. Well, he had all the animals and all the creation, and it was all his dominion. What do you mean he's lonely? Yeah, lonely doesn't mean bored. It means he was without a friend. And so God creates Eve. What does this tell us? This is a, I, I get this insight from Tim Keller. I want to give him credit. I don't know who he got it from. I'm sure he got it from somebody else too, but that's okay. It's who I got it from. And he said, this is so unique. It's the only thing that we could all agree is, well, maybe not all of us, but most of us would probably agree, um, is sort of part of the brokenness of existence, loneliness. But it's on, the only part of the brokenness that we experience or the, incom- I would say not brokenness, let me call it incompleteness because this was experienced by Adam when? Before the fall. It's not necessarily brokenness, just incompleteness that he experienced before sin entered the world, which is, means that it's related not to our imperfection as human beings or our sin, not our imperfection or sin, but actually is related to our perfection. Does that make sense? Meaning that Adam was so perfect, he was so like God that before Eve was created, before another human being in which he could have friendship, he was experiencing the incompleteness of creation. So when you experience loneliness, it isn't some defect or imperfection in you, but actually your perfection crying out for the fullness of what God has designed. That's the longing for friendship, because it's rooted in the very nature of God. And of course, God in his goodness gives Adam a companion, a friend. And he gives us friends. And he wants to be our friend. Because our perfection longs for friendship and our loneliness points to our need for it. So what does Jesus say? Verse 13. Verse 13. Actually, verse four, let's start verse 14. Jesus says, you are my friends. You are my friends. And then Jesus defines how friendship and love relate. Just go up one verse to verse 13. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Wow. So if Jesus has laid down his life for you, he considers you his friend. So there's no version of Christianity, therefore, that has God just as Savior, not as friend. Just as Lord, follow my command, and not you are my friend. Jesus has just obliterated two-legged stools, one-legged stools. He says there's a three-legged stool. God as Lord, God as Savior, and God as friend. It's the only version that's true Christianity. Jesus said it himself right here. I am your friend, 
And the greatest act of love is to lay down your life for your friends. And then commanding you (laughs) to be my friend means to love as I've loved. It's just this perfect, complete package of what it means to know God as your creator, as your Lord, as your Savior, and as your friend. And we have to work and grow in understanding all these elements. So if you're not there yet, just know that's where you should be heading. Don't stop short. I think that's what Luther came to find. He never knew God as friend until he understood grace and love in the right way. So Jesus says, you are my friends. He says, I've laid my life down for my friends. And at this point, he hasn't done it, so they're... What is he talking about? And, of course, after the fact, they get it now. And then Jesus tells his disciples in verse 15 something very unique about how to distinguish if we have real friendship or something else. And I I love this idea. Look at what he says. Verse 15. Jesus says this. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. So there's this really cool and interesting definition of friendship that Jesus gives us here. And again, so important. Are you conceiving of your relationship with God just as servant-master, where he gives commands and you do them? And if you do them well enough, he compensates you for doing good work? Or are you conceiving your relationship with God and Jesus as a friendship? Because Jesus says, friend, or like masters don't tell their servants secrets. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I've told you things that my father, who is my friend, has told me in secret, and I've made that known to you. A master would never do that. Because that gives you power in the relationship. I'm giving you power, he's saying. I'm telling you secrets. I'm telling you things that you wouldn't otherwise know, and I don't have to tell you because I want to be friends with you. This is friendship. This reciprocal sharing of very intimate, sensitive, secret information between people at the proper pace and at the proper time, okay? So that's just a little... Side nugget of how to make a friend. Don't just overwhelm them with your secrets on first hangout at the ball game. (laughs) You know. And make sure that you don't forever keep your full self from them. And only be there to listen to them. That's what a therapist does. Therapist is not your friend. It's the person that just listens, but they don't share any secrets with you. You see how that works? So Jesus says, I want to know your secrets, share them with me, and I will share secrets with you. Things that the Father has told me, I will share them with you. About my plan, about what I'm doing, about where we're going, I will share with you. And not only will I share with you, remember, and this goes back to remaining in him because he's divine, and what we said two weeks ago, which I'm going to send my spirit, and my spirit will live in you and be with you, he says, Not only do I share with you information, but I will also share my presence with you. That's friendship. Presence and 
sensitive, personal information. That's friendship. It's unbelievable (laughs) that the God of the universe who created all the stars in our galaxy, all the galaxies that we haven't found the end of yet, that that God says, I want to be your friend. I want to share with you information that I don't have to, but I, but I, but I, I, I want to, and I want to be with you. I want to be friendly so that you've become friendly. So I heard this illustration about the difference between master, servant, and friend. I thought this was really good, so I want to share it. It goes like this. Say that you're lost looking for directions. You pull to the side of the road in your car, and you see somebody there that looks like a local. And so you ask them, hey, could you give me directions down to, you know, Tacoma? Um, something like that. Tacoma's pretty easy. Just get on the I-5, you'll, you'll smell it. No, just joking if you're from Tacoma. Just joking. I'm from here. I'm from up here. That's not a thing anymore. It just used to be a thing. Not anymore. I, I just came out. It's not in my notes. I can show you. It has nothing to do... That was unnecessary. That was, unlove, that was not lovely, what I just did. Okay. <laughs> Tacoma. Love it. Great spot. Okay. Let's change the narrative. <laughs> okay. I'll use Issaquah. Issaquah. I can do that. Okay. So, Issaquah. Smell it. No, Issaquah. Yeah, it's kind of the same out 90. Smell it. Very fresh air over there. So. Okay. So, you're looking for directions. You pull off to the side of the road. And, and hear the difference. So you could pull off to the side of the road and you ask the person, you say, hey, uh, I'm trying to find my way to Issaquah and could you help me get there? And the person pulls out a piece of paper and he draws a map. And it could be a very detailed map, a beautiful map and a wonderful map. And you interact with the map. You're like, wow, what a map that you've drawn for me. And he sends you on your way and you head towards Issaquah. Um, This is kind of like a lot of the major religions of the world. Like you can think of Confucius and his Proverbs. And he has written down a detailed map. And you'd learn a ton by studying it. And he sends you off on your way to try to live a good life. This is like Muhammad. And he has his writings. And and then he dies. And then you you read his writings and you learn something. And it kind of helps you order your life and... It's helpful, maybe even profound, and you figure out using his writings and his map how to make a good life. Buddhism could be like this, where you have the sayings of Buddha that have been written down, and Buddha then died, and we study Buddha's writings and sayings, and they help us find a way to a fulfilled life. The difference, the primary difference between how Christianity presents itself and all those ways is embedded in this illustration. What if you pulled off to the side of the road and you're looking for directions? Where, how do I get there? Where do I go? And, and the person tells you, hey, listen, it's pretty complicated. I don't think I can fully tell you through instruction how to get there. You know, I'm headed there too or near there. It would be all right if I hop in the car with you. And I'll give you step-by-step direction as we go. That's Christianity. That's friendship. The God of the universe has stepped down into our car. And he said that I will be with you at every turn. No matter what comes up. 
No matter what new technology, no matter what, what new world situation, I will be with you and help you navigate to get to where you want to go. I'm headed that way too. And I'll be right beside you in the car. That's friendship. That's what God is offering in Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. Utterly different. <sighs> Allie wanted me to share this <laughs> illustration. So if I go long, it's her fault. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> a really fun thing's been happening lately that's related to friendship. My son, Owen, my five-year-old, wants to be my friend. Every night he wants me to come lay in bed with him, and he won't let me turn on the other side away from him, and he wants me to look him right in the eye. <laughs> and he tells me all his secrets. And his secrets pretty much always have to do with his birthday party that's coming up in 10 months. But he's like, Dad, do you want to know a secret? And he tells me the secret. And it's usually the same secrets over and over, but he really doesn't want me to forget. Dad, did you forget about the birthday? We're doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I'm like, All right, oh, yeah. But thanks for the, the reminder. And so, um, so not only is he telling me secrets, but he's also... He, <laughs> so we, uh, my older son, Grayson, accidentally uh, home alone us and flooded our kitchen by leaving the sink on, wet bandits. And when he flooded the sink, we had to redo all the hardwood floors in the house. And so we've been out of our house for like two weeks now. Um, because they redid the whole first floor because the whole first floor is hardwood. So they, they said, well, the insurance company will match it. It's great. So we've been out of our house. And so that means we took everything out of the bedrooms, which means we get to put everything back in the bedrooms, which means there's an opportunity to redo how we do the bedrooms. And Owen sees the opportunity, and he's been so excited for a long time about this, like days. That's a long time for a kid. Days he's been excited. And he's been telling Allie, Dad, I'm going to be roommates with Dad. It's like me and dad And he just keeps repeating it over and over He's speaking it into existence It's amazing He just keeps saying it And me and dad will be in that room And you and Grayson will be in that room And he just keeps telling her over and over It's just like Beautiful He wants to be my friend He wants to tell me secrets And he wants me to be present with him Wow What a gift and I want to be his friend too. God wants to be your friend. Do you want to be his friend too? That's the second part of being a human being, being friendly. The third part, be otherly, which is to say, have nothing to do with darkness. Because what does light have to do with darkness? This last Lee, this other Lee, is really connected to the pruning of what Jesus said last week. I mean, he didn't say it last week. You've got to remember, he said it right then and there. So these things flow together, and I don't want to miss it. And maybe, maybe you struggled with that when you saw Jesus says, any branch that's not bearing fruit, a dead branch gets thrown into a pile, and that pile gets thrown into a fire and misses out on the life, and that's a tough one. What, what is Jesus talking about? Well, every spring I prune this living vine arch that's in our backyard. I prune it, 
And I try to find the vines that are alive and will produce flowers, and I keep those, and then I look for the dead ones that have hardened and don't look like they'll bear flowers, and I'll remove them in the hopes that the arch looks lovely. That's all Jesus is talking about. We don't want to overstretch the analogy too far. But in this passage, Jesus is just extrapolating his comments from last week. Are you a vine for fruiting, or you are a branch for burning? Remember, those are Jesus' words, not mine. And it seems to me that he's clarifying those comments primarily by identifying his disciples as those who bear fruit in the form of love for one another. This kind of love for Jesus' people, for fellow Christians, this is like no other love. It's truly otherly. And we know it's truly otherly in part because of what Jesus will say next. So we'll get there next week, but I just want you to see it. If the world, verse 18, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. This kind of love for one another is otherly because people hated Jesus. So to love Jesus' people and to love Jesus is otherly. It's an other kind of love. And I, don't want to, I didn't want to miss out on talking about this third otherly. The first two are kind of positive and fun. But the kind of love that Jesus gives to us when he loves us and makes us lovely and makes us friends is the kind of love that is truly other. Again, there is no partnership with darkness and light. And if we bear love in this way, it will truly be a unique other kind of love. It won't be confusing. Now, I don't, you know, it's like, oh, it's so uncomfortable to talk about. But it's important. Because time and time again, we run into people who do seem to be trying to love people, even in the name of Jesus. And this, was not, this is not actually something new. People who do all the things, like Ryan's uh, handout, who are moralistic and follow all the laws or know all the right things to say or are experiencing mystical expressions of God. And it just seems so much like they must be, they must be Jesus people, right? Jesus told us that there'll be people like that. And the other thing about them that they won't have, even if they have all this other stuff, is they won't have love like Jesus' love for one another. Let me just show you a couple places. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. He said, not everyone who says to me, he's talking about at the end of the day, before the judgment throne of God, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What Jesus has just said is to love like me and love one another and to remain in my love. Jesus goes on, he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. We were never friends. 
And then he says something very harsh. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So Jesus isn't saying, it seems like they're doing miracles. It seems like they're prophesying. It seems like they're casting out demons. He says, these are people who actually did these things. And they broke my law, which is to love like I loved and to love one another. But they did all these things. Which law did they break? The command he says right here. Prime example of someone who seemed like they were a part of the vine, that seemed like they were connected, that were doing prophecy and was sent out with all the other disciples, probably was casting out demons, probably was healing people, probably had all the signs of all the other disciples, yet did not love like Jesus loved. Just held that part of the heart back from being transformed. His name is Judas Iscariot. And he ends up selling out Jesus, his friend, his friend, and all the other disciples, his friends, for a few pieces of silver. So it's possible to have all the signs of being a part of the kingdom of God, of experiencing Love in all these ways, but if you do not have love like Jesus loved and love for the saints, love for one another, true, sacrificial, not man-curved-in-on-itself love, but open-up love of God for others, truly selfless love, if that's not bearing fruit in someone's life, no matter what they do or how moral they are or how much they know about the Bible or how often they come to church or whether or not they're a pastor paid to talk about this stuff, Jesus says, some are branches that will be thrown away if they do not have true love. Otherly, it's just not the same. And I've got some more examples. John, you could write these, just write these down, go read them yourself. 1 John 3, 10 through 18, he talks about love and love for one another and whose children are you. Read that. You could go read about love in the book of Acts. It's a great place to look for love. Love in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, 23 to 35, and Acts 5, 1 to 5. Tells story about sharing all the things that we have and having them in common and loving one another. And and no one had need. And it tells us that the the 5, 1 through 5 is just just a haunting passage of a couple who sells a piece of property so that they can give the money to the church, but they keep a little bit behind for themselves. And both husband and wife fall down dead for their conspiracy to fool the Lord and the Lord's people. This kind of love is otherly. This kind of friendship is otherly. It's not nice. It's not even generosity. It's otherly. It's haunting. It's holy. The people of God are meant to be people of love. Pure, unagendered, not self-seeking love. They're meant to be friends of God and friends of one another. Not in the way the world does friendship, 
not just to get what you need, but to give what you have. True friendship. And they're meant to be otherly. Distinguishable from other forms of false light. Truly other in the way they express the very character and nature of the God who created them, a holy God, an other God. And then to live that out as image bearers. That's what Jesus is calling us to in this part of his farewell speech. Let me give you this just very quick concluding thought. This came to me last night as Allie and I were laying. I'm still Allie's roommate, by the way. <laughs> so we were laying in bed and just talking about the sermon. And so a lot of these thoughts are hers, and I just want to give her credit for that because it's related <laughs> to what I've just said, but it's also kind of just like a bonus, okay? But I just want to say this. You may hear this sermon, and you may, you may wonder, how can I be a friend of Jesus? You may say, how could I actually be a friend of God? You might say, how can I be a friend to fellow Christians, like truly a friend to my fellow believers and Christians? And How can I be a true friend? Just to anybody, really. And I think a strange, the, the strange thing that Ali and I were talking about as, as we were talking about this idea is that I don't know. I'm not saying this is the pinnacle of life, but I do think it's maybe the main barrier to you experiencing God as friend, Jesus as friend, and true friendship in the world, which is the question, can you be a true friend to yourself? And I say that carefully because I don't want to sound like that's the most important thing is loving yourself or being a friend. That's not. But I think it might be the thing that keeps us from experiencing friendship in all the fullness of their forms, including friendship with our Creator and God. Can you be a true friend to yourself? Which is to say, we all, I think we all, have an internal dialogue that's almost going all the time, right? We're talking to ourselves. Maybe that's just me. But we're talking to ourselves. And... There is a way that a master or a boss talks to an employee. And we talked about that. There's a way an acquaintance or a coworker talks to a coworker or acquaintance. And there's a way that a true friend talks to a true friend. How do you talk to yourself? Like a boss or, or a master will talk to you with ulterior motives because they have agendas to fulfill. And they will probably try to create a desire in you that is not innate to your own desire. That's like how a boss interacts. Like an acquaintance or a coworker, slightly better, they will try to come to know you and what you innately desire, and they'll ask you about that. Like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? But a true friend interacts with you differently. A true friend says and comes to know you in such a way and see you in such a way that their question is, they're trying to drive out what do you actually need? It's a little uncomfortable talking to a true friend sometimes. And the question I'm asking is, how do you interact with yourself 
Do you have some sort of unhealthy relationship with yourself as a boss talking to an employee where you are creating desires and working towards those that aren't even innate to who you are? Or like, are you like coworkers talking and you're just trying to help yourself live into whatever desire is most pressing or you feel most deeply? Or are you a true friend to yourself and asking yourself, what do I really need? What do you really need, Dave? What is really missing? What do you need? And I believe that if we asked ourselves that question honestly, if we were honest about what we really needed with ourselves, that that whole idea of man curved in on ourselves, it would open us up to, to the things that we really need. What do we really need help with? What do we really need from our Savior? What do we really need from our God? And then we just might realize he's given it. But until we ask ourselves the hard question, what we really need, we might not even know we need friendship with God. We need forgiveness from God. We need someone to step in the car with us and drive with us because we don't know where we're going. Can you be honest with yourself? Can you be a good friend to yourself? And I've found this over the years. The very best friends do what? Help you pick other friends. No, that friend's not good for you. Yeah, but but they're so cute. No. No. (laughs) Not in the way you need cuteness. A good friend will say the hard thing. You need Jesus as a friend. He will say the hard thing. He will help you make other friends that will help you be lovely and friendly and otherly for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the God who calls me friend, oh, the joy of the riches of the revelation of God. Oh, to be a friend of God. God, I, before we come to this table and have communion with you and remember the cost of that friendship, what it took to make friendship possible, what my sin presented as a barrier to our friendship, Before I come to take that, God, I just want to repent of seeing you as a cruel master, as a boss who just barked commands, and for thinking that my job was to just do my duty to earn my compensation. God, that is not how you have addressed me or called me into your presence, and I'm sorry, God for thinking about you that way, for talking about you that way, for friending you in that way. You have taken upon yourself all my iniquity, all my imperfection, and you are calling me into the perfection of friendship that you are and that you offer. 
God, I receive that love. I receive that friendship. I receive your light now. In Jesus' name.